This is week number two of my sermon series, Great Romances of the Bible. And what we're doing in this series is just allowing some of the uh, famous romantic couples of Scripture to teach us about relationships. Now, last week we uh, took a week and kind of laid some groundwork for this series. Today we're going to start in by looking at our couples. And the first couple we want to look at is the first couple in history that ever fell in love. And of course, you know I'm talking about Adam and Eve. Now you talk about a couple that had everything going for them. I mean, they did. Think about it. Their wedding ceremony wasn't performed by the local preacher, but by God himself. And there were no guests at the wedding, which means they didn't have to spend all that money on catering. Their honeymoon wasn't spent on a cruise ship or in a five-star hotel, but in the perfection of the Garden of Eden, which was probably the most beautiful place there has ever been on this earth. And all of their expenses were paid. And there were no in-laws to stick their noses into their business. And neither one of them had a past, which means that Adam never had to listen to Eve talk about all the men she could have married if she hadn't settled for him. And Eve never had to listen to Adam talk about what a great cook his mother was. But without a doubt, the very best thing they had going for them was the simple fact that they were made for each other. Over the years, many infatuated Sometimes lovesick couples convinced themselves that they were just made for each other. But Adam and Eve really were. Let's read about it together in Genesis chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still, there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. Now, in verse 18, right there in verse 18, we see where God clearly made Adam and Eve for each other. It says, God says, I will make him a helper who is just right for him. And that means that when God uh, made Adam and stood him up and looked him over, he didn't say, hmm, I really like this. I like this guy. I'm going to make another one just like him. No. God stood Adam up and make the, uh, looked him over and said, hmm, I really like him, but I'm not going to make another one. I'm going to make him a partner. I'm going to make someone to compliment him so that where he is weak, she will be strong, and where she is weak, he will be strong. And they'll have all these complementary traits, and it'll be fantastic. And it was. And that's what God did. And I can just imagine those first moments and those first days and weeks and months 
when Adam and Eve were getting to know each other and noticing all the differences between them and noticing how those differences were not a problem, but how they helped them complement each other and how life was so fantastic and how life was so exciting with the two of them there together. Sadly, we live in a time when the line between the genders is being erased. Um, Not long ago, I would have said the line is being blurred. But we have come to the day where the line is being erased. I'm sure you've heard in the news uh, all these progressive couples who are expecting a child. And you say, well, what are you having, a boy or a girl? And they say, well, we don't know. And we won't know until our child is old enough to decide how it wants to identify. And when the child decides how it wants to identify, then we will know if we have a son or a daughter. Friends, I never thought I would live to see the day where someone would make that kind of statement with a straight face. But that day is here. And so let me just say this before I continue. Everything I say in this series is going to be Bible-based. I could not care less what our culture thinks about gender identity, same-sex marriage, or any of those kinds of issues. If those things are important to you, if that's where your heart is, if that's where your head is, you are going to hate this sermon. But you see, this is a Christian church. We believe in the Bible. And from this pulpit, it will be the Bible that guides our thoughts. Not whatever... Not whatever the latest cultural trend happens to be. God made them male and female. Men and women are different. Eve was not a clone of Adam. She was a different kind of human being made not to duplicate him, but to complement him. Which brings us to the most fundamental requirement, I think, for anybody who wants to have a great romantic relationship and a great marriage. And that is simply this. You must understand that men and women are different. Boy, are they different. (laughs) Let me read you this little clipping. I don't know who wrote it. But whoever wrote it understands what I'm trying to say here. There are many differences between men and women, but nowhere is the difference seen more clearly than in a shopping mall. Take, for example, the typical man and the typical woman shopping for a pair of pants. When a man shops for a pair of pants, his primary objective is to buy a pair that fits his particular body. A man will try on a pair of pants, and if they're too small, he'll try on a larger pair. This process will continue until he finds a pair that fits comfortably, and then he will make his purchase. A man does not care what size his pants are. In fact, many men wear jeans with the size printed right on the back for the whole world to see. If you're standing behind a man in a supermarket line, you will see this information proudly displayed. 
even if his hind end is the size of a Federal Express truck. <laughs> However, women are different. When a woman goes to buy a pair of pants, her main objective is not to buy a pair that fits. Her objective is to buy the same size she wore when she was 19. <laughs> this will be some arbitrary number like five or seven. Five or seven what, you ask? Nobody knows. This is a question that has baffled scientists for centuries. All I know is that if a woman wore a size five when she was 19, she will still wear a size five when she's 30. In order to get them on, she may have to lay on her bed, kick her feet into the air, and twist her body into the shape of a pretzel, but she will wear a size five. Yeah. Whoever wrote that gets it. Remember John Gray wrote a book called Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. If you're not real savvy on the solar system, you could just say, Men are from Home Depot, and women are from Target, right? Men are from Four Rivers, and women are from Panera. Men are from ESPN, women are from HGTV. At least that's how it works at our house. Do you remember the Rocky movie, the first Rocky movie? Rocky was asked why he likes Adrian. You remember what he said? He said, we fill gaps. She has gaps. I have gaps. We fill gaps. Friends, that's exactly how God intended for it to work. Adam and Eve filled each other's gaps. Rather than being alarmed about the differences between them, rather than being irritated by those differences they saw in themselves, rather than trying to work so hard to prove that there were no differences, they embraced those differences. They were fascinated by those differences. They enjoyed those differences, and they got along great for a while. Eventually, there came a time when their perfect world and their perfect life and their perfect relationship, their perfect marriage, came crashing down. You've heard the old saying, well, the honeymoon is over. Well, their honeymoon came to a screeching halt in the third chapter of Genesis. Uh, let's look at what it says. Genesis 3, starting at verse 1, it says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened. And they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together 
to cover themselves. The serpent tempted Eve to eat the forbidden fruit from the tree that was in the center of the garden. Now, don't you think, don't you think that if there was only one tree you couldn't eat of and 10,000, maybe 100,000, maybe a million other trees you couldn't, you could eat from, don't you think you could just leave that one tree alone? I mean, you got 100,000, maybe a million other trees you can eat from. He only says, hey, just leave that one tree alone. Don't you think you could do that? The Bible says that the serpent, though, was the shrewdest and the trickiest of all the animals in the garden. And so he did what he always does. He, he, he spun a very convincing lie that persuaded Eve and eventually Adam to eat. And, and that's when the honeymoon ended because that's when sin and shame and secrecy came into their relationship. And their lives were never the same again. What's interesting is that we see a very similar pattern in a lot of romantic relationships today. Everything starts out great. You know what new love is like. At least I hope you do. New love is the greatest thing in the world. You know, you you walk around about three feet off the ground. The sun shines and the birds sing. Even on cloudy days, the sun shines and the birds sing and you can't wipe that silly grin off your face. It's the greatest thing in the world. It's a little slice of Eden. But then things change. They turn sour and often for the very same reason they turned sour for Adam and Eve. Simply put, are you ready for this? This is where the sermon gets personal and maybe a little uncomfortable for some of you. Simply put, many couples forget how blessed they are and start longing for things they don't have. Think about Adam and Eve. They were in a perfect, literally a perfect situation. Everything on earth had been specially uh, uh, designed and prepared just for their enjoyment and fulfillment. They had it so good. But there came a day when they took their eyes off of what they had and started thinking about what they didn't have. Satan began to work on their minds to convince them that something was missing. He began to plant little seeds of discontent in their minds. He painted uh, uh, pictures in their imaginations, pictures of how grand life would be if that one thing they were missing, suddenly they had. Look at verse 5 again. Satan said, when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be just like God. And that thought took hold of Eve's mind. She began dreaming. She began fantasizing fantasizing about how incredible it would be to know what God knows. And sure enough, it wasn't long before all those blessings, all those things that God had prepared just for them, all those things God had given them that were so good, suddenly they didn't mean anything anymore. All she was concerned about was the one thing she thought she was missing. And so it is today that couples grow restless and unhappy when they forget how blessed they are and start fantasizing about things they don't have. Have you ever driven by a pasture and seen a cow or a horse with his head stuck through the fence, nibbling the grass on the other side of the fence, when he's got a hundred, maybe two hundred acres behind him with perfectly good grass in it? 
but he wants the grass on the other side of the fence. If you're married, sooner or later, Satan is going to come to you and he is going to encourage you to look outside your pasture. He'll catch you in a weak moment, probably on a day when you're frustrated with your spouse because he's not stupid. And he'll start planting those little seeds of discontent. He'll probably start pointing out little things that are missing from your relationship. And without question, he will call your attention to certain things and certain people you may never have noticed before, like ladies, that good-looking guy at work who has that incredible cologne and who doesn't seem to have any of your husband's bad habits. And guys... That new secretary they just hired, you know, the one in the tight sweater, who laughs at all your jokes and agrees with everything you say. Satan is a master, a master at drawing your attention to people and things that are on the other side of the fence. He'll do everything in his power to convince you that if you just had what was on the other side of the fence, your life would be better than it is now. We call it forbidden fruit. And when you get a whiff of that forbidden fruit, if you don't squash that temptation right away, it will become all you can think about. Nothing else will satisfy you. And you will charge full steam ahead in pursuit of it, whatever it is. And you will not care what God has said. You will not care what God has done for you. You will not care what God has given you. You will be so obsessed that you will disregard your blessings. You will disregard God's warnings. That's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. All they could think about was knowing what God knows. But when they got what they wanted, it brought them nothing but heartache. And that's what a lot of people discover today, that what they thought they couldn't live without, what they thought was going to make their lives so much better, so much more exciting, was in fact, A death sentence. Friends, I'll say it just as simply as I can. Forbidden fruit is the number one relationship killer of all time. Why do you think Satan went to that temptation right out of the gate? Because the world was perfect. Adam and Eve's marriage was perfect. And he knew that not just any run-of-the-mill temptation was going to work. So he brought out the big gun. Forbidden fruit. 
So let me give you two simple suggestions as I wrap this message up. Number one, don't think of it as forbidden fruit. Think of it as poison fruit. Because you see, something can be forbidden without being poison. Uh, when I was a kid, we had a cookie jar at our house. But there were times when the cookie jar was off limits. Mom would say, don't get in the cookie jar. It's, it's too close to dinner. No cookies. But if I would sneak one while she was in the other room, and I'm not saying I ever did. <laughs> I'm also not saying I didn't. But, I, but if I would sneak one when she was in the other room, and I would eat a cookie. Obviously, it didn't kill me because it wasn't poison. Because some things you see are forbidden, but they're not poison. The thing about forbidden fruit in a marriage is that it's not just forbidden, it's poison. The world is full of families, of marriages that have been completely destroyed by that little taste of something different. I'll say it this way. There is no such thing as a little taste of poison. Every taste of poison is a big taste. I mean, if it can kill you, then there's no such thing as a little taste. So stop calling it forbidden fruit and start calling it poison fruit because that's what it is. Here's suggestion number two. Stay in the center of your pasture. Don't go near the fence. Don't be hanging out around the perimeter of your pasture and craning your neck to see what's on the other side of the fence. Above all, do not stick your head through the rails to get a little taste of what's over there. This is at the heart of what Solomon was saying in Proverbs 7. He said, listen to me, my sons, pay attention to my words. Don't let your hearts stray away toward her. Don't wander down her wayward path, for she has been the ruin of many. Many men have been her victims. And you could flip that and write it uh, for women, and it would be just as true. Listen, the best way for you to keep from straying is to stay in the center of your own pasture and keep your eyes on your own pasture. Because once you start looking over in that other pasture, you are, Satan will see to it, that you will see something over there that you like. And once you see something over there you like, if you look at that and look at that and look at that, you're going to start thinking about it. And when you start thinking about it, your heart is going to leap over the fence into that pasture. Even if your body is still in your own pasture, your heart is going to be in the other pasture. And when your heart is in the other pasture, you're going to be climbing that fence. Stay in the center of your own pasture. Remember, Don't call it forbidden fruit. Call it what it is, poison fruit. And stay in the center of your own pasture. There is absolutely nothing and no one on the other side of that fence that is going to bring you anything but heartache. Let's stand. Father in heaven, 
Forgive us for those times when we have not been content. 